This is Emergency FD Storyline. Sometimes things happen and you don't see the significance in the moment until some time passes. And then you're able to reflect and you're like, wow. If you have a grandmother that's a really great cook and she dies and doesn't teach anybody her recipes, the recipes die with her. And I just felt like it was God's way of saying, you know what? I put you through some stuff. You got some tools. Share them. Share. Share them. Have you heard the saying, turning lemons into lemonade? That phrase, it's a proverbial phrase used to encourage optimism and a positive can-do attitude in the face of adversity and misfortune. Lemon suggests sourness or difficulty in life. Making lemonade is turning them into something positive or desirable. When I think of first responders in general, turning lemons into lemonade is in their DNA. The views expressed on this program are from the guest and the host and do not necessarily represent the views of any government agency, private company, or public service. Emergency FD Storyline's focus is to tell the stories of those in the fire service and to highlight what matters to our first responders. There are some stories I want to investigate. Not all are about a tragic event. It could be about an individual. And sometimes it's to find out what makes that individual tick, why they do what they do. Why are some people encouragers? I think the Bible calls it an exhorter. Some people are teachers. What drives that passion? When these individuals' lives are filled not to serve self, but to serve others, it grabs my attention. In the fire service, I find many that fall into that category. It's a lifetime of service, no matter what they do. Some may have been sidelined by an injury or tragic event, but they move forward with the same passion to serve others. Some of these individuals could be bitter, but they are not. And what is sidelined is redefined. And that's the story of my guest. And like me, he's a talker. He speaks every day through a podcast, social media, instructing, and he speaks in person. This is his story. What makes him tick? You may have heard of Coach Camp. His real name is Christopher or Chris Camp. He's the perfect example of what a firefighter paramedic truly is. Turning lemons into lemonade. That's our storyline. Well, many know him for Coach Camp. That's what they know him for. Also, Christopher Camp, Chris Camp. Well, Chris, he's with me right now. And I want to get the story behind the man. Chris, you're on YouTube. Facebook, you got a podcast, and you do a lot of instructing in EMS. And so we're going to get into that. So, Chris, welcome so much. Glad you're Thank here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's fun. Tell me about your story, how it began. Okay. So in 1973, I was born. And then uh, shortly after that, I was around hmm, probably four to five years old. This TV show came out. And, you know, back in those days in the 70s, you only had like four or five channels anyways. And our TV was black and white, 19 inch. So we didn't have color. And I actually have vivid memories of this. And I've actually binge watched a lot of it lately. Do you know the show I'm talking about that might oh. influence kids to Roy go into the line? John emergency <laughs> nailed it <laughs> nailed it i can all you, you can almost start talking about a scene and i can tell you what year and episode it was on i was a huge fan and as a child that captivated me one of the cool pictures i have up in my office is a picture of me at probably between four and five and i have on the full gear that you would get with the fire helmet and stuff and my dad's kind of behind me and i'm like you know charging the fire looking back on that moment later i have a picture of myself on a fire next to that picture and it's just like man talk about meant to be i was like this this was the moment it was supposed to happen and so from four, I had a natural love 
to do stuff that was probably dangerous. My mom would say, yes, that's true. Along those same lines, I wanted to help people. And that was at an early age. And so that started to develop as I got older. Um, it turned out being in the neighborhood I was in, it was full of kids. Kids in the neighborhood, they would gather up and we would do dangerous events. Uh, the Goonies came out back in that day. I don't know if you remember the Goonies. That was an influence to us. I had this natural ability about me to be the leader. It was just, a, I'm an outspoken person. I don't know why, but my friends like to hang around me. So I guess that was like, you know, they were drawn to the personality. I'm pretty charismatic. I would agree to that. And, and so that, that started to grow my love to be a leader as a small person. And then as I got older, I, I was falling more and more in love with public service. Chips Patrol came out, if you remember that show. Remember that and, one as well? Um, oh, yeah. I, I thought about, man, that would be cool to, to maybe be a motorcycle police officer. So all these things are kind of like influencing me as I'm growing up. Along the same lines was baseball. So I had fire police and baseball, and that was pretty much my life growing <laughs> up. And uh, I had family members that were in the military, I had family members that were police officers. The short story to all that is I just knew that whatever it was I did when I grew up, I wanted to do something that had an impact on other people's lives. I wanted it to be meaningful. And I kind of had a good idea about this before I was even a teenager. My mom and dad would tell you, he's like, man, he's just, he always wanted to be a part of something, helping somebody else out. It was just in my DNA. All that said, as I got near the end of high school and the hard decisions had to start to be made about what did you want to do? for a living. I love the idea of maybe playing shortstop or second base for the New York Yankees. Tom, turns out they don't just take applications. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> so um, that wasn't happening. So I'm like, all right, I got to figure out what I want to do for sure. And so when I went into college straight out of high school, I went into criminal justice. I was going to be a police officer and be an FBI agent. So as I got near the end of my associate's degree in criminal justice, I decided, you know, I don't think I want to go to a full bachelor's program right now, but I kind of want to see some things and do some things. So that's actually what inspired me to go into the military. You went into the Air Force. What was that for yeah. you in that particular time in your life? What was that like? Right at 21 years of age, whenever I was finishing my associate's degree and decided to go in the military. It's funny because I was all the way up until the point I was about to go into basic training, I was thinking I was going to go in as a military police officer. And it turned out that I got flagged on something. And so this is an important thing for anybody out there listening. I got pulled over at a roadblock at the age of 20. Just before I turned 21, I had an unopened, it wasn't, wasn't even open, a bottle of beer in my back seat. The police officer arrested me for possession of alcohol by a minor. Now, understand, I had I had no other issues in my entire life with law enforcement, anything. So just before I go in as a military police officer, that got flagged and said, well, you're you're not eligible to be a police officer for that. But because you scored high enough on your ASFAB, you can do all these different jobs going into the Air Force. And one of those things was satellite operator. Now, I found this time to be very interesting. So I was not qualified to wave people through a gate, but apparently I could direct billion dollar satellites with a top secret clearance. Yeah, go Who figure. Knew? <laughs> Who knew? So that's what I did. I went in and I was a satellite operator and immediately realized uh, you have way too much energy to sit behind a desk and look at a screen. That was not going to be what I was going to do for a living. And so then I transitioned to database analyst while I was in, which is basically keeping up with statistics. That was not what I was going to do. And so that leads us up to where we're going into the fireside because I had about two weeks left and I was I was going to get out of the military, did my four years. And the intention at that time, and I was living in North Carolina, I was going to move back to the Memphis area where my family's from. And the idea was I was going to come back here and continue the pursuit of being a police officer. And a Air Force firefighter moved in next door to me in base housing. And we just get to talking one day in the front yard. And he's telling me about they only work 10 days a month and the training they get. <laughs> and then he starts talking about the EMS side of things. And I'm like, whoa, that sounds uh, kind of cool, kind of awesome. And that actually is the first time that I really thought that I would go the path of being a firefighter. And that was in the Air Force, which, wow, that, that's amazing. So from the Air Force, when you get out, you, you said you spent four years. That's how many mm -hmm. years you spent? Four years yes, in the Air Force. You get out. 
this guy has an influence on you and you're kind of like, that's kind of like burning inside of you. So he's talking fire EMS. And mm-hmm. then what happens after that? So I really kind of marinated on that right before I got out and uh, we moved back to Memphis and I had to move back in with my parents for a second. I was married. I had a two year old son and, you know, we're trying to get things you know situated back home. And I'm like, look, I got to get a job and I don't have any uh, fire training. I said, so maybe I should do some volunteer work just to make sure it's for me. And so I, I went to the Walls Fire Department and volunteered, signed up to be a volunteer, went through their volunteer cert classes, training. Honestly, had never been on a fire truck. But uh, that early years, those early years of watching emergency, I always was in love with the idea of being a Johnny or a Roy. I mean, that just seemed so cool to me. And the first fire time, the first fire we made and I, it's so hard for a person to understand this if it's not in your kind of your uh, wheelhouse, so to speak. I cannot explain it, but it was like I'm hooked. I'm hooked. It was, <laughs> it was incredible. The adrenaline rush. It's like an the, addiction. It, it is really an addiction. Is. It yeah. is so weird to say that, but it is an addiction. And it's not that you're getting, you know, you're not happy somebody's stuff is on fire. No. But it was just that adrenaline rush of going in and you know it's dangerous and you're doing a, a job that is meaningful. And I came out of that fire, that first fire, and I'm like, mm, this, is, this is it. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. So you move on from there. How do you get to Memphis? Because was that a transition period or how did that work out? Because you spent a career with the city of Memphis, which is one of the biggest fire departments in the country. Mm -hmm. Then you're involved in EMS. And I'm telling you, when it comes to EMS, Memphis is just, what is it you don't do there? That's a good point. So how did you get there? So from from that moment, whenever I knew I was hooked, uh, I started asking questions, calling people. I'm like, look, I want to go to Memphis. I wanted to be a Memphis police officer initially. So now it's like, no, I'm going to be a Memphis firefighter. I was being told, you got to get your EMS stuff. So you got to get your EMT basic at least. If you don't get your EMT basic, you know, you're never going to get out. So Tom, here's a short story of, of the doubts people would have in me. So I had only taken the ACT one time in my life, and that was my 10th grade year, and I made a 16 on it. So when I went and applied for the EMT You and EMT I have a basic, lot in common. <laughs> look, I'm telling you, I'm not an academic <laughs> giant, right? So it's like uh, this. They kind of looked at me in the counseling. I was like, uh, this may not be for you. It's pretty hard. <laughs> and I said, no, this is really what I want to do. So I got into EMT school and I was obsessed with it. I studied it relentlessly. I finished that class uh, with a 96 overall average. And understand, I was not an A student. So I just knew then that I am passionate about fire and EMS. So I'm still working at Walls and I'm like, I need to get a job doing this stuff. And at that time, it was really hard to get a job just as a firefighter in this area. This is back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And it was really difficult to get a job just as an EMT basic. People just didn't hire basics. You were a firefighter with basic, but it was just hard to get jobs, paid jobs. So I ended up going from there down to Gold Strike Casino to work as an EMT basic. That was opening up at that time. Security yeah. guard, right? Yeah. So it was a security slash EMT basic. And it also kind of did give me the the experience moments that I needed to know that this is something I could do because I made my first full arrest down there. I made a person that had been hit by a car down there. So I made some serious calls while even though I was you know working at a casino and I'm like, all right, yeah, this is something I can do. And so I kept waiting for like a year working there while I was waiting to get hired and it just wasn't coming. So I'm like, well, what else can I do? And I made some phone calls and they're like, if you get your paramedic license, they are going to gobble you up as fast as they can. So I started into paramedic school. And when I was in paramedic school, I probably made it almost halfway through. DeSoto County EMS uh, hired me as an intermediate EMT. So back then they didn't have advanced EMTs. They had intermediate EMTs, which basically you drove the ambulance. That was where I started. And while I was going to school, so I was going to paramedic school still. When I finished paramedic school, I worked at DeSoto County for just a short stint. And then I went to South Haven. 
and worked for South Haven for about eight months as a as a paramedic, not as a firefighter, because you have to go through the Mississippi Fire Academy. And just before I left to go to the fire academy, and it took three years, Tom, from the time I had applied, from the first time I had applied in 1999 to get on Memphis, it took three years. I get a phone call, and it is the Memphis Fire Department offering a position. I was like, absolutely. And so I ended up not going down for the six-week course at Mississippi, but I went to uh, the Memphis Fire Academy and that was the beginning of things was in uh, September of 2002. That was also after 9-11. Yes, it was. Uh, all those yeah. things had taken place. So I, I think it added some meaning. Tell me this, the same thing everyone has in common that are really serious about fire and EMS. There is a passion about it. You're willing to work really hard to get there. I'm talking about the people that really want, it's not just a mm-hmm. job, but it's a calling. Tell me about that. Cause that, that was kind of going on in you before you even get to Memphis. So going all the way back to my, my childhood again, it's this burning passion that I had to help people. I just wanted to do something that was bigger than me. I knew that from an early age and that sounds probably crazy to say, but it really was, it was very genuine. I loved helping other people and any opportunity I had as a child, I would do that. So I knew that whenever I got older, whatever occupation I went into, I would do something that was just bigger than me just getting a paycheck. And police work was what I initially thought. But so Memphis Fire Department was kind of like the pinnacle around this area in the Mid-South. If you want to run with the big dogs. And that, again, goes back to my mom always, you know, shaking her head because I'm doing the dangerous things. I was like, I got to get on Memphis. If you're going to do this, I'm going to I am going to go as high as I possibly can and be as trained as I possibly can get. And Memphis was it. That passion to help people was always there. But The next level was also always there. I always wanted to push myself, even young, to see how far I could go, how much I could get, how much I could do. So I knew Memphis was going to be the challenge. And I'm not even going to lie. It was about the pay as well. Because back then, Mississippi paid very poorly and Memphis paid very well. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to learn as much as I can, do as much as I can. Why not get paid for it while I'm doing it? I mean, pretty well. Back then, it was pretty decent money, good money still. That was the big stepping stone. Because all it of a sudden, you're, it's like going from the minor leagues to the major leagues, all of a sudden Absolutely. you're in Memphis. So tell me about that experience and when you went in, what it was like. Oh man, have I got a story for you. So <laughs> in three years in Mississippi, I had made, just to put it into context, I had made two shootings. One of them was a domestic. The other one was an accidental. He, he was A guy was looking, thinking there was a prowler and shot itself. In the first 12 hours on my first shift in Memphis, I made two shootings. And on the second shooting within the first 12 hours, I'm like, oh. The game has changed, baby. The game has changed. <laughs> I knew right then I was no longer in Kansas, as they say. It never slowed up. I'm talking from car wrecks to the, I mean, Memphis is a violent city. I'm not saying anything people don't, wouldn't know, and a lot of the big cities are, but Memphis just brought such a wide array of calls. We have some of the worst stroke victims. I mean, this this section of the nation is known for high blood pressure, stroke, heart attack, the violent calls that I was speaking of. I mean, you just get so much of it that you become become really good at it or you just can't hang with it one or the other. But I think I felt like that it was in my wheelhouse. And so that drove me and that that actually made me um, want to be better and better and better. So the first station I was at was Station 10, which is at South Parkway in Kansas Street. We just got tons of action. And about three and a half, four years in, the SORT program was up and going, the Special Operations Rescue Team. That was already up and going. And they were talking about putting a third rescue in. At that time, they only had rescues one and two, and they were talking about doing a rescue three. And so that meant that they were going to have to train a whole nother batch of guys for three shifts to be able to ride on the rescue unit because the ambulance is equipped with special equipment and stuff and special meds. I had thought about it before. I was like, well, here's a rare opportunity because they're going to be looking for candidates. And I put my name in a hat. I was fortunate and I got pulled. 
as, you know, this group of folks that were going to bring in and they were going to train while on duty, which was unheard of. Back then, you had to go off duty to get your training, which brought some people a little bit of animosity because we were getting to do this stuff while on, on the clock. But they had to have uh, three whole crews trained quickly to get this up and going. And so uh, I was fortunate and I got in on that group. I tell you what, I loved it. You know about it. Your son was a special operations rescue guy. And, you know, you're trained on trench rescue, confined space, swift water, rope, hazmat. You know, you get all these technical degrees and it's weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of training. I, I probably went for about 18 months total going to these different classes before we were done. And you feel like you're Johnny and Roy now. Now I'm coming out of there. I'm definitely, <laughs> I am, I'm going to go with, I was Johnny. I was Johnny Gage. Before you hit the special ops and you hit those units, you got your fire training through Memphis. That's what got you in. So you yes. went through all that. So now you're hitting at that different level where you're getting all those certs that get you into SORT. Tell me a little bit about that experience because I know there's some firefighters that I talk to work in smaller departments or smaller towns, or whatever. And, you know, I think my son described it to me. Within the first month or two, I saw more than some firefighters ever see in their entire career working in special operations. Was that your experience? Tell me a little bit more about that. Because like you said, you got good. What what was that like? You know, the funny thing about it is you want to be confident and there's a balance there because if you get too comfortable, then all of a sudden that complacency can actually lead to danger. And so you want to stay on edge just a little bit, but you got to be confident in your skills and decision-making. I had ran a lot of calls up to this point, you know, just on the ambulance in general and fire calls. So, so working in South Memphis, you make a good bit of fires. You make a pretty decent amount of, um, of car wrecks and such, you know, extrications, you would be responsible to a point of that. But obviously, working on rescue, it's it's the next level. So anything that requires more equipment or higher training, that's what you're called to. And with only three rescue units in the entire city, you know, you, you have a pretty large area that you're responsible for, not just like your smaller areas from one fire department, so, so to speak. You know, you got your firehouses where maybe two or three firehouses will respond to a single incident. Well, with rescue, you're going to a lot of those all over the city. So some of the things that started to come into play was just the technical rescues. You know, uh, we had a, a lady that had been flipped down into a ditch uh, about 20, 25 feet. A uh, car landed upside down. There was a there was a, a lot of water in the ditch. And so the water's kind of coming in and you don't have time to second guess. You have to be very confident in your skills and you have to act quick. And you realize that time is of the essence because once that car goes completely underwater, you're done. You have no chance then. Seconds, not minutes. So we get down in the water and, you know, that training, the stuff that you you go through over and over and over, it's weird because you fall back on it so quick and you're not thinking about it. And us being able to get down in there, bring the right equipment, pop the door, get into the car, pull the lady out before the, the car becomes fully submerged. You look back and you're just like, ah, we did that, you know? It's like, wow, we did that. It's those kind of calls. And we had tons of them. We had a bulldozer once that was trying to bulldozer type lift thing on the front of us, trying to pick some stuff up out of like this 20 foot hole over on President's Island. And the weight was too much. And they had to flip the, the dozer down into it. And was the guy's legs were pinned on a bar. We pull up. And, you know, this is one of the things I tell my paramedic students is we don't have the luxury of saying, oh, that sucks. Uh yeah, that's going to be a tough one. We wish you the best on that. I hope that works out for you. We got to figure it out. And, you know, so being able to go in and tie that off and be confident that we're going to be able to get under there, cut this guy out and rescue him. That takes so much training and it takes so much coordination and teamwork. I was ate up. I ain't lying to you, Tom. I was ate up with it. I absolutely loved it. So those were the kind of calls you go on when you're on the special ops rescue teams. You know, the other calls, people go to those, but they look to you to figure out 
the difficult task. And that's part of the job that I'll, I absolutely loved anyways. Did you ever get called the Spice Boys? All the time. All the time. <laughs> uh, I embraced it. Uh, <laughs> I developed my own dance from it. So uh, the people at the hospital, they enjoyed it. Back then I had some, you know, we talked about hair before the show started and I had some nice, long, flowy locks that I pulled back in my hat. So I'd take my hat off and shake it and be like, there's your Spice Boy. That's it. It didn't Did hurt you, my feelings. I remember when the program began because I watched that start and the individuals that started it. And then watch how that evolved. And, and then also even have the opportunity to ride New York with the rescue units mm. there, which, of course, their focus is directly fire suppression. It's kind of changed now and then those rescues. But it's an amazing opportunity to have that opportunity to be a part of that. I refer to it as being in the Navy SEALs in the fire department. You have a skill set that no one else has. And at the same time, again, you're doing those things, but you're also the medical. Mm-hmm. You're able to not only do those technical rescue skills, but the medical here you are a paramedic. Tell me about that experience a little bit more with, with Memphis particular, because it's a common experience. The reality is the, the more you do anything, the better you should become at it. All right. So if you want to play baseball as an example, I like to use baseball as an analogy. Uh, it's no secret. I love baseball. If you go out there once a week and you take grounders for about 10 minutes, you cannot expect yourself to become very proficient at anything. Those guys that do it great, there's a there's a saying, you do it 10,000 times or 10,000 hours. And to an extent, that's what you end up doing. And so as a paramedic, you are put in positions where you are training constantly and your calls are coming in constantly. So like some calls in the rescue area are not, and by the way, thankfully, they're not a ton of those. So the hazmat calls, they tend to not come in a ton But they're some of the most deadly calls you could go on. So the training is required constantly. But as a paramedic, you not only have to know the side of things where you do the rescues yourself or you're doing the fire suppression part of it. But once you get those patients out, you got to be able to treat them. It's not a happy ending for one of the calls that I was on with rescue, but it is a story. And it does tell the story of how much is expected of you as a firefighter and then paramedic and then on the rescue team. We made a fire, a house fire once and I come up to the door and I breach the door and we go in and it wasn't a lot of smoke from the outside. But once we got in, of course, the oxygen hits the fire. It just blacked out. So you couldn't see anything. And I dropped to my knees. I put my mask on and I had the nozzle right at the door. So I grabbed the nozzle and my lieutenant was on my left and he says, all right, I'm going to sweep to the left to fill for victims because we were being told somebody was in the house. And I went to the right where the fire was. So as I turned to the room to the right, I tripped over something. And when I felt down, I'm sitting there trying to hit the fire with the nozzle, of course, and, and the water. And, and I feel down and I can feel the person. And so now I'm trying to hit the fire because the fire is right on top of me. And I grabbed the guy and I'm trying to holler, but I'm in my mask. And so really the only way you can communicate in these things is with your radio. And at that time, both hands were full. I didn't have a third hand. So I grabbed the guy and I'm trying to drag him backwards to the door while I'm trying to hit the fire. I knew where the door was, of course, because I was only in about 20 feet, 25 feet. I get to the door and I just dropped the nozzle down. And I come, I pull the guy out into the front yard and people are coming up and I'm like, you know, the fire's still going. There's the nozzle. Uh, this is the, this is the only victim I found. So now I'm on the radio and then we have other people coming over. Ah, Tom, start to turn around and go back into the house because I'm fixed on, I'm knocking this fire down. But you have to understand, I just pulled a person out. And so as I start to go in, the lieutenant's like grabbing at me. He's like, hey, you go get the victim. And I'm like, oh yeah, I got to do that too. I forgot about that. So I run back out there and we start doing CPR on the guy and, and I ended up working on that guy all the way to the hospital. We probably did CPR for 40 minutes and uh, we, unfortunately, we did not get him back. But it just goes to tell the story of, you know, as a firefighter, as a paramedic, as a rescue guy, you do have to wear a lot of hats and uh, you do have to be wired a certain way. So obviously I'm a little high strung. I'm pretty 
rapid go. I got a lot of energy <laughs> and uh, I don't know what it was, but something about the the higher the acuity, the more danger there was, the calmer I got, the more focused I got. And I think that that is a trait that you probably do need if you're going to be a firefighter in general, but especially if you're ever going to join a rescue team and be a paramedic. Any incidences that come to mind that really had an impact on you or with all the skills, with all the energy, well, the passion you have for it, is there something that really kind of hits you or more than one? Can you tell me some of those incidences that kind of stick with you now? You know, it's funny because folks, a lot of times, I just did a speech today, actually, with a with a high school. That's what the students want to know about. They want to know, you know, what's your most gruesome call? They, I guess they think that that's going to be the things that mess with you. And the truth is, it's not that those moments are not sad, but those are not the ones that hit hardest. A lot of times, the the, the more gruesome the call, so to speak, more simple the call is. Because there's just a few things you can do, and then you got to get them to a hospital. The ones that always hit me were, were calls where it involved family members, or I could really relate to the situation. One of them that stands out was I made a father on Christmas morning in full arrest in front of the Christmas tree. And... You're just working on this guy and you're just begging. You're like, please let me get him back. Please let me get him back. And the whole family's in there. And it's just those kind of calls that stay with you. And you just, you can't shake them. And a lot of those types of calls don't turn out the way you would love for them to. That's just the harsh reality of life. Those were the ones that hit, but we did a lot of good. We did a lot of moments where we did rescues like the lady in the car in the ditch. And and those are the ones you really cling to. And you just hope that at the end of the day, when you look back over the calls, especially the tough calls, you want to look back and know that no one else could have done it different or better, and that you did everything you were ever trained to do. And not always does it go smoothly, but there's nothing you could have done different. Because if you look back and you second guess yourself, it will eat you alive. It is tough to do this job as it is, and you just want to be proficient at it. And that's not to say that things aren't going to break. They're not going to go wrong. I mean, our unit got stuck one time in the snow and we're working on a guy. So there's moments that you just cannot predict or, or, or be ready for. But that's the thing where you have to take some of that out of the equation. You got to practice, you got to train, you got to be competent. And if you do those things, you're going to be okay. There's three moments in my lifetime where I had to take a step back and say, maybe I should do something different. Maybe I should think about a different career path. And one of those came early, early in my career. I was only on the department less than a year. My lieutenant, Lieutenant Trent Kirk, was trapped in the Family Dollar Store fire and he he died. Him and I didn't I, realize he was exactly. your lieutenant. So he was. I, wow. Tell us a little bit about that. Go into that. Tell me that story. That's a that's a tough one. It is a tough one. And it was very eye-opening. I didn't go into firefighting thinking that I was invincible. I wasn't I wasn't naive like that. But you do feel confident in the guys you work with. You feel confident in your skills and your training. That was a very eye-opening moment because I was a young guy. I was in my twenties. Here's this guy that, you know, this my lieutenant is He's a superstar. I mean, he's been doing this for a while. He's super smart. Great guy. Great guy. I remember getting the phone call. I was at my, it was my wife's, it's my wife now. It was my girlfriend back then. I was at my girlfriend's house and I got the phone call that night and I was just like, this can't be real. It cannot be real. And, um, yeah. Was he detailed or something? He was, he was was working overtime. He was working overtime. He actually could have gotten off work, but because he came in at 7.30 that morning to relieve the guy, that person that was coming back that night said, you can stay till 7.30 to get your full 12 hours because you can do 12-hour overtime uh, shifts and you can also do 24 if it's in your 40. But this was coming off of a shift. So he's like, all right, well, I'll I'll stick around till 7.30. And that call came in, you know, just at seven o'clock right after seven. So normally he would have already been off work. And that was something else that you just question. You're like, some things, it just doesn't seem like it's fair, but you you wouldn't wish that on anybody else. It's not like we would wished it would have been the other lieutenant or something. It's not that at all. It's just, you know, how did so many things line up for it to be him? It was a wake up call. Did you come back the next day? Was 
your shift day the next day or a day or two after that? It was the next day. It was the next morning, actually, which is why he was getting off. I'm a young guy again, so I don't I don't know what to expect. And I come in and I just I'm spent. Yeah. 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 I'm just I'm picturing that day. It was tough. I just remember walking in and and everybody's just nobody's talking. Nobody's talking. I didn't know what to do. So I just walked into the turnout room and I got my turnouts. I just put them on the pumper and I'm just, you know, I'm like, screw it. Let's just go. One of the senior guys, he had been a driver for a while, Brandon Pittman. And he just came, he was like, we ain't got to go to work right now, buddy. We ain't got to go to work. So chief came in, he talked to everybody and uh, they let us go home. And so we, we left that day. And then later, maybe it was the next shift. I can't remember if we went into the four day or not. It's a little bit foggy, but they, uh, they did bring us back in a day or so later for a CISD team. And they came in and spoke to us. Of course, they had the fireman funeral and that. And at that time, I started thinking maybe I should, maybe I need to find something different. And I did some soul searching. I did some soul searching and I came down to this. And the, and the, the fact was this, could I see me doing anything else and love it as much? Nope. Nope. Couldn't do it. So I said, this is what I got to do. This is, I'm, I'm going to honor him by doing this. And this is a, just as a fun side story to this. Uh, when I'd started, I started writing down all my calls. Lieutenant Kirk looks at me and he's like, kid, one of these days, you're going to throw that book out the window and cuss that unit all the way down the street. And I said, nope, Ludy, I promise I'll never quit. And honestly, <laughs> at that time, I didn't know if I would quit writing down the calls. But after that incident, I never quit. I wrote them all down. 6,216. Wow. Yep. Wow. I wrote them all down. I have them all in the book at the house. It molded my future. It changed how I looked at things. It made me probably pause, which is something that um, wasn't a bad thing because I was very gung-ho. We've already established the idea that I was a risk taker. I was gung-ho about everything. That's always been my whole life. It was it was a wake-up call, like I said. That molded me. Now, that said, I've been fortunate to have some good mentors along the way, to keep my head on a swivel, to never get complacent in a situation. And those two things save my life. And I will tell you one, I will tell you one. And then the other one, I know you're going to know all about, you're going to know all about it. Oh, go so ahead. share this one. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like I talk a lot, but then again, I have no. my own show about talking. So it's just, <laughs> yeah, my co-host, he's always like, man, you say a lot of words. Yeah, it's true. Wife um, says that. <laughs> Everyone I work with says that. Go ahead. I know where you're you, coming you know from. all about it. Yeah. <laughs> so one call where it was definitely a moment that could have been the end for me. I'm working on I-240 on a wreck and we're getting a person out of a car and it had been raining. It was dark and we were the only ones on the scene at the time. So the, the pumper was on the way. You know, usually on, on an interstate, they'll call for at least a first responder just for traffic purposes. They had not gotten there yet. And just as they were starting to get there, I heard some screeches behind me and I looked just in time to see a car veering straight at us. I jump over the guardrail and had I not jumped in that one split second, it would have crushed me right between the car and, and that vehicle. That one stayed with me. And I was, I was probably on only maybe two years at that time when that one happened. And I was like, that was reality check number two. I'm like, that's mm. almost like either reality check or strike number two for you. I know. Right. So cats have nine lives. I don't know how many um, adults or humans are supposed to have, but yeah. So I'm like, okay, so if I had not been paying attention the whole time, that could have ended very differently. So that was another career molding moment. It really drove home the importance of always looking. We always say BSI scene safe whenever we're doing training. Well, scene safe, it's not a static thing. It is very dynamic. It's constantly changing. You have to constantly pay attention. You're listening to the Emergency FD Storyline with my guest, retired Memphis firefighter paramedic, Christopher Camp or Coach Camp. I'm Tom Mann, and I want to take a moment to remind you that you can help continue the production of Emergency FD Storyline, this audio podcast, by donating any amount at our website, 
emergencyfd.com or emergencyfdstoryline.com. Look for the donate page on our website. Any amount will make a difference. And please like, share, and follow on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And feel free to share the podcast with others. It all makes a difference. Let's return to our storyline with Christopher Camp, Coach Camp, turning lemons into lemonade. The last and third final moment that was defining for me, do you remember 400 East Brooks Road? Mm-hmm. You do. Mm-hmm. So we were coming out of Kroger that day, and a call was coming out for a fire. And we looked down the road from Kroger off of 3rd Street, and we see a mushroom cloud going up. I am driving out of rank on the pumper. So understand this part for anybody that's listening, doesn't, doesn't really understand some of the structure. So when you start to get trained on something like a piece of equipment, like a pumper or or the truck company, you drive and it's called out of rank. And so you're learning how to do this. So it's, this is like my third day ever driving the pumper. And we come out of Kroger and I see a mushroom cloud. We're driving down the road and the lieutenant's yelling at me, go, go. And I'm like, I'm going. And I look down and I think I was doing like 30. <laughs> so my foot's like, no, nah, no, nah, we good. We're going to stay back. We're just going to stay back. But um, in my mind, I'm like, I think I'm going. But I wasn't really I wasn't really going that fast. So we get to the scene where the first one's there. And you just see fire and stuff in this big building. And people are running out of it. And this guy comes up to the pumper. And he's like, everybody's out of the building. But the back of it's still on fire. And so we... The lieutenant decides to make entry. He's like, let's get on, let's get around the corner, let's go over there and, and hit the two and a half on it. So we go around to the back of the building and we start pulling hose and we start putting water on this fire and we go up into this place, which is probably not the best idea because it's got hazardous materials all up in there. And we go up in this thing and we're probably in there less than five minutes hitting it with water. Chip Sneed. Oh, One yeah. of the pioneers mm-hmm. of life, I think, on fire department. Yes. I believe he started in 1840. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. Chip Sneed, one of the original sort guys, yeah. paramedic firefighter guys. I mean, he is he's, he's like the legend. He is. he is the legend. And has yes. the mustache to prove it. Yes, indeed. He has the legendary mustache. He pulls up on the scene and you hear his his very distinct voice over the radio with ex- some expletives being thrown in <laughs> to get out of the building now. And so uh, we back out and I'm, I'm not kidding. We were probably we were barely out of the building 10, 15 minutes and it exploded. That would have completely vaporized us at that point. That was before you were on sort when that took place. Is that correct? I wish that I could say yes, but I was brand new to sort. I was just, so, I had just came over and we were the, we were the brand new company. We had just oh, wow. been okay, put so together was, and started. Yeah. So like the new thing, the new sort, the new everything, the new uh, engine And house. we stepped in it hard. Wow. <laughs> and Chip wasn't happy. Yeah. <laughs> I would just put it that way. But um, I was very thankful to Chip. He saved my life that day. He really did. He saved all of our lives that day. Um, there's no doubt we would have all been, we'd all been vaporized. So those moments stayed with me. How did you cope with did, them? Well, you know, different ways. Uh, it's a great question. I think the biggest, the biggest way that I cope with a lot of my stresses is through physical exertion. I am a marathon runner. I've completed an Ironman triathlon. I just recently did a 50 mile run. So I am, I am an exertional type person where some people will compensate with drugs, alcohol, Mm -hmm. alcohol being a big one. I just push myself to a limit. I feel like I can't go another step. And then it's like that clears my head, believe it or not. And I call that the healthy forest gump. (laughs) You know what I mean? But it's good. I mean, it's very, like you said, you can go one direction or the other. And there are a lot of guys that said, I Mm. went that direction. So you, you did that. That was your your way to cope. That's usually how I would handle it. You know, spending time with family, of course, distracts Mm -hmm. you. But if things got in my head and they did, and you know, I'd 
as, as we'll probably talk about in a minute, is the podcast that I have. I just did a series on on PTSD, right. and I did have some of that. And the the PTSD wasn't in the way that some people have it, where it's the cold sweats or you know certain things are just lighting you back up. It was uh, for me, it was kind of like. I had become de- so desensitized to things that I had coped with it so much that honestly, and this is, sounds gruesome and I apologize if it is, but if you walked in with your arm cut off, I'm just like, somebody grab a towel. I mean, it was it was so nonchalant to me. Doesn't and, bother uh, you. You've seen so much. You're desensitized. Yep. It's like, okay, let's just take care of this. And let's go back to doing what we're doing, right? Right. And I, so I think a lot of that was from the exertional exercise I would do. So I would burn that out of my mind. It would almost like it just kind of like hit reset in my head. I may have said it on my show, actually. I can't remember. I was driving home from work one morning and this is when my daughter had just been born. She was little. So I had to get home and relieve my wife so she could go to work. And so I'm trying to get to the house and I'm going down I-55 and I look over and underneath the overpass, I see a person. It's dusk. So the sun's just now starting to come up and I see a person lying flat face down in the rocks. And my very first thought is that guy's dead. Nobody sleeps like that. That guy's dead. But Tom, here's the problem. I didn't stop. I didn't call anybody. It was so obvious to me that person's dead. And I just kept driving and I never thought about it. And I get home and I get my daughter and my wife heads off to work. And then later she calls me and she's like, yeah, I was, uh, I was about 40 minutes late to work today. And I was like, why is it? She goes, apparently somebody was dead on the side of the interstate. And I said, oh yeah, I saw that guy. She's like, wait a minute. (laughs) What? You saw that and you didn't mention it when you got home. I'm like, honestly, I forgot about it. She said, you forgot in 15 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, that's got a good point. That's a problem. That's probably a problem. So I should probably look at that. But that was the way it started to affect me was the worst of the worst. Just is like, it was nothing. And that was a problem. And that's not who I've ever been because I was a very compassionate person. Good to hear you talk about that because a way to cope, but at the same time, you know, something's going on for somebody else who's sitting here right now, because you got the perspective, I think looking back, when they're getting those moments, what do you advise them to do? Because it, this this happens, especially for many, many firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, military. nurses, military, sure. police officers. You know what you're doing. You're good at what you do. And you know how to do it. You just keep doing it no matter how bad it is. Mm-hmm. But what do you do? How do you identify it? And what advice would you give somebody right now with that? I'm glad you asked that. And the truth is it manifests itself different ways for different people. We're all wired our own way, right? So we are all unique to our own personality. And so it's not going to just necessarily show up in another person like it does with me or like it will with you. But here's the thing. One thing that I noticed was as I got older and a little wiser, I like to think I got wiser, I started listening to other people's opinion that were in my circle. So not somebody that didn't know me. Like if you just found me on social media and you said some bad things about me, I don't care about that. But if you are in my circle and I know that you know me and you make a comment to me about something that either I'm doing or I'm not doing, it's a personality change or whatever. I started listening to that. And, you know, it's easy to dismiss, I think, and just say, no, I'm fine. But my advice immediately would be to anyone, if if people that care about you and know you. Like your wife you, in your example, right? Exactly, exactly. And they're saying, this is not you. This is not normal. Don't brush it off. Take a second and think about it because that could be the thing that saves your life because you and I both know how this road ends for a lot of individuals, unfortunately. You get into this point of depression and you cope with it the wrong way and you you substitute that hurt and that pain with these numbing agents like drugs or more specifically alcohol for a lot of my colleagues. And that just leads to bad roads. And I would say pay attention to that. If somebody is stating that you may have changed, there's something going on. Listen to that and take some self-evaluation in the second part. And this is the most important. The first part is you have to recognize there's a problem. If you don't recognize there's a problem, you can't do anything about the problem. So you have to recognize that the second part is take action. Do not be ashamed. Look, I have spoken to so many groups of people and 
I'm very open and honest, is difficult to be vulnerable. It, it does take bravery and courage. And a person sometimes will see opening up about a problem like that is, is maybe not having that courage or bravery that is needed for that job profession. And I would argue that is wrong. I think it takes more courage to step up and say, this has become a problem. I need to do something about this. And there's a path to being better. People out there, professionals that can help you, your colleagues can help you. And uh, don't be ashamed of it. That's the thing. Do not be ashamed of it because it can happen to absolutely anybody. My son one day said to me, which really struck me, he said, Dad, this is number six or something like that. I said, what are you talking about? I think it was in the five years of his career, six individuals that he knew or worked with that committed suicide. And mm-hmm. they were either military or they were in the fire service. I don't know that many in my whole life that have done that. And we talked about that. Like I was working with him the other day. He seemed to be normal. Everything was okay. Carried on conversation. Something at home upset him or something went wrong and then just went off the deep end. That's probably the thing that we carry around with us as the as the survivors if you, a friend. You know, if we're friends, we have friends that commit suicide. That's the thing we carry around with us is, is the idea of did we see something and we didn't say something? You know, did we not notice something we should have noticed? We could beat ourselves up with that. Unfortunately, I have had five friends on the Memphis Fire Department committed suicide. Some of it was more intentional than others. That said, and then by for the way, most it could happen of it, any department, we're not talking about any department, any department. Yeah, anywhere. no, absolutely, absolutely, no. That's I wasn't meaning to isolate in that yeah. sense. Just like personal friends, people that I was very close yeah. to and knew personally. In every instance, there probably was that trigger moment that set them to the next level. But the truth is, at least for most of them, we knew that they had been through some tough times. We knew that they had battled some demons, if you want to call it that. And you know, it's not that we could have done anything different because once something's taken care of or once something's done. It's like you can think about all the ways you could have fixed it then. Being the podcast, having a lot of different areas that I talk on, but more specifically mental health in general. It's not just PTSD, but it is the idea that we deal with a stressful world. We're exposed to stuff now that I wasn't exposed to 15, 20 years ago. You know, it's all in your face in a, in a very large way. It's important to note that if a person is having a problem, you should say something and make it uncomfortable. But it's also important to state that if something does take place, it's not fair to hold responsibility to that. And unfortunately, I have known friends that have had a very hard time moving past that moment, that feeling of guilt. It's not an easy job. It's not something that's for everybody. But I will say for those of you that go out there and that do this, expect at some point that you will have problems with something. You should expect that. It's perfectly okay to seek help for that. You should seek help for that. Let's move forward in your story. You're doing this thing for quite some time. How many years were you on with Memphis? Just shy of 16. Because this 15. is a big part of the story of it. What mm-hmm. happened? I'm hearing this guy loves his job, has the usual stressors, has excelled in the job. You're doing the passion you love. So what was next? What happened? Sometimes things happen and you don't see the significance in the moment until some time passes. And then you're able to reflect and you're like, wow. Kind of like I didn't become a police officer, which led me to being a firefighter. So it was it was weird how these things did connect dots. But in 2010, I sustained an injury on the fire truck with my right shoulder. Ended up tearing my labrum and my right shoulder. So I go in, have surgery, they fix it and rehab. And while I'm on rehab, I get assigned to the fire academy. I had never thought about teaching. Like we've already established, I was not academically strong. But while I'm out there, they're like, hey, would you like to do some of these classes? And so they had like state pay. They had different things going on. So I could help out with that. Didn't have to have any special certifications. And so in 2010, I go into the classroom and I help out some while I'm on light duty out there. And Guess what? I loved it. I loved it. I don't know what it was about the audience or being able to talk and being able to to share stories and knowledge. It was a natural fit for me because I'm a talker anyways. Three months go by. I go back to the company. No big deal. Arms better. I'm out there. I'm doing my thing. Fast forward to 2013. 
I literally went to bed, not having any issues, woke up the next morning, my right arm was killing me. And it just felt like I slept funny. So I dismissed it. I was like, eh, who knows? I'm getting older. Another day comes and goes. The pain is deep in my shoulder. And I'm like, this is crazy. I don't understand. A couple of days go by. And now it's like, I've got to get something done. So I go and this is the shoulder that I had surgery on. So I go and I speak to them and, at the department. And they're like, well, it's been past a year because it had been three years. And like, so it's not an OJI anymore. And I had done nothing. That was the thing that was really baffling to me is nothing had happened. It wasn't like the day at work, the next, the, the day before I'd picked up something heavy or we fought a fire. It was literally nothing had happened. They do an MRI and it turns out two of the three anchors. And by the way, I'm, this is no blame. Things just happen. Life happens. And we've already established I'm full tilt. So for those three <laughs> years after surgery, nothing changes for me. Once yeah. I go back to the field, I'm like full, get it, whatever that is, fighting fires, rescues, whatever. And so for those next three years, I was, I was giving it all I had. And two of the three anchors had come out. And in the process, the rotator cuff had been tore, the labrum was retore, the biceps tendon was tore, my AC joint area had impinged on itself. So I had that's why I was having so much nerve pain in the front and the top. And they had to do full reconstruction. It was a full overhaul of my shoulder. It was very difficult because I'm not, I don't have first and second gear. I'm full, I'm wide open a lot of times. And this really made me take a step back. And all those years, my mom and dad telling me, you just wait till you get older, you'll slow down. And I'm like, that ain't never happening to me. It was happening. It was happening. I didn't want it to, but it was happening. So it was sidelining so for you, right? I'm not good at that. Yeah. I'm not good at sidelining, but it was. Yeah. At that time, I was again being put out at the fire academy. So I'm like, you know what? I really like teaching. I'll start getting my, my stuff in line. So I ended up getting my degree and I moved on and got my teaching certificates and qualifications, my instructor coordinator. So I started getting classes because I really enjoyed it. I was looking long-term. I was thinking, you know, I probably won't be able to do what I'm doing for the rest of my life. At some point, something may end up coming up and I probably won't be able to. So I started getting those classes completely a fluke that I was doing it then. It was just the chance that I was there. And I was just like, I'll just take advantage of the moment while I'm here. Put me back out in the field, rehab, go back out in the field. My right shoulder dislocated. And when it did, I felt something pop in my left arm. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I go in, I get an MRI and I had tore the labrum in my left arm. And so now my right arm is dislocating. I have wow. tingling in my fingers and the doctor's just like, you know, you could keep down this road if you want to. You're not going to be able to use your arms. So I ended up getting surgery on my left shoulder. It was one of the toughest moments of my life to accept I couldn't will myself back. I could reach physical limits and in my mind be like, you're not done. Keep going. You're not done. Keep going. And I could push past that. And this was one of those moments you just couldn't do that. You just you physically could not make your shoulder do better. I had to accept it. And they uh, retired me in the line of duty in 2016. You know, I'm not one to feel sorry for myself, Tom. Yeah. I'm not. I didn't like it. I was not happy about it. But, you know, you can choose to be a victim or you can choose to use your circumstance to to go to the next chapter in your life. And I was not about to be a victim. I was immediately thinking about going to PA school. I knew I had an affinity for just medical in general. Within 24 hours, I get an email stating that there is a position open at Southwest for a paramedic instructor. I'm like, hmm. I do like instructing. So And I'm a paramedic. 30, and, <laughs> and I'm a paramedic. I, what have I not seen? What have I not done? Exactly. So 30 days from the time I was retired on August 1st, I started working at Southwest. And the moment I stepped into the classroom and connected with those students and realized that all these years of experience and knowledge, it was intended for these moments to be able to pass that on to the next generation. Suddenly an analogy came to me that I use all the time and it's so true. And that is if, if you have a grandmother that's a really great cook and she dies and doesn't teach anybody her recipes, the recipes die with her. And I just felt like it was God's way of saying, you know what? I put you through some stuff. You got some tools. Share them. Share Share. I heard you make a statement and you said, I was led by God to put out your message. 
that was yes, part sir. of the whole thing. Because I want to go into that. Because to me, this is this gets to the story and what you're doing now. Right. And I think for someone, I'm just going to say it, who has been sidelined. I mean, this job sometimes just happens. This is not mm-hmm. it's nobody's fault sometimes. I know so many individuals, great guys, that all of a sudden they had to stop. If it was physical, it can be mental, it could be emotional, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? Because you didn't go off the deep end with this. You said you move forward. And all of mm-hmm. a sudden, all these things I experienced that went through, I think the better term is God led you through all of them so that now you can share that recipe, right? The key, and this is easier said than done, is if, if you've connected with your passion, and, and that passion could be anything. And uh, sports, you know, I'll use the analogy a lot of sports, but athletes all the time, they go into basketball, football, baseball, and they have this long-term career idea. And sometimes injuries take them out of that. And if that's where they choose to let it end, then that's where the story ends. But for those that had a passion for it, they can find their purpose through it. And that's what I did. I had a passion for this career field. And I knew there was a bigger purpose then because, you know, and I do have a faith in God. And I felt like, you know, God didn't put me in this position and have this take place and allow this to take place. And things do take place in our lives that are not necessarily something we would choose for ourselves or we understand in the moment. But I felt like there's a bigger reason. And so for anybody that is, has had a setback or maybe had a derailment of what they saw their future being, just take a minute and think about it. And if it was your passion, there is a purpose. And that purpose, sometimes sometimes it takes time to develop. And I did not know it was meant for me to go into a classroom, but I trusted that. And I think sometimes that's what you have to do. You just have to trust the unknown. And if it if it's the right fit, it'll be there. And when I stepped into that classroom, Tom, and this just this just expands on the idea of what why a person should follow that passion and find that purpose. I'm in front of the classroom and I'm talking to my students. Look, I swell up with emotion all the time. I've done it here a few times. I can't control it. It's 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 inside of me. It's just who I am. That's not ever fabricated. It is truly, genuinely who I am. Brought that same thing to the classroom and my students could feel it. And you know what? Maybe some get into this career field now and they feel like they have to do these things because now if you, if you get hired by big city departments, they tell you you have a certain amount of time, you got to get your paramedic license. And if you don't, then you're fired. And so they begrudgingly go through the process of getting their EMS side of things. I have had students come into the class and, you know, I talk, you know, the first couple of days and just like, you know, what brought you here? Blah, blah, blah. Just trying to get to people, you know, and, and kind of get behind the story. And I've had those folks say, I have to be here. I'll correct them. And I say, you don't have to be here. You get to be here. And you need to understand the significance of that. And I start to share with them my my story. And I start to share with them my passion toward it. Suddenly, you will see, not all of them, but you will see some, most actually, I would say most, have a change of heart and realize that this is bigger than them. And then if they're going to do this, they need to go all in. They can't just go through the motions. So I would tell anybody that's derailed from their plans or they feel like that they've been given a raw turn of events, you know, don't feel like a victim because if you want to be a victim, you can be. And that will dictate the rest of your life the same way. Don't do that to yourself. You're better than that, no matter who you are. You deserve better than that. And the people that you're going to influence, and everybody has an influence on other people, allow that to come through. And that's what I did. And so me taking that moment and getting in front of the class and sharing my passion and teaching paramedic the way that I wanted other people to be to me, if they responded to me, suddenly my students said, you've got a gift. And I said, well, yeah, paramedic, I love it. And they're like, no, you got a gift. You got a gift for connecting with people. You got a gift for talking to people. You should be on a stage. And I'm like, "Mm, did somebody get hurt on the stage? Because I can handle that. And they're like, no, you need to be a professional motivational speaker. And I said, I have literally never seen it that way. But Tom, I've coached sports my whole life. Approached the same style of teaching as coaching. It was because my arm got hurt that I ended up in the classroom. And it was because I was in the classroom that my students said, 
you need to start your own business speaking. Then now I have Motivate with Coach Camp, which has multiple social media sites. I have a podcast with Shelby Rowe Productions. I do speeches all over the place. I just had a speech this afternoon, and it gives me an opportunity to continue to share that passion, not just for EMS, but for life in general, providing others with the very thing that you just asked me about. Of what, what would I tell somebody? And that is find your passion, and inside of that, there will be a purpose, and don't say no. As you talk about this, I now think about what you're doing. You're still teaching, instructing in that passion, that field you love. You've gone a step further. I've watched videos. I've watched your YouTube channel, Facebook page, now your podcast. You got a website, which is motivatewithcoachcamp.com. And again, Mm -hmm. it's Motivate With Coach Camp. You're looking for it on YouTube. Motivate With Coach Camp if you want to find it on Facebook. The thing with that is you talk about an area quite often is leadership. Yeah. Not only do you motivate, do you encourage, which is something we all need today. You go a step further with that because you're talking to people that are outside of the, shall we say, out of the fold here. Is that from your experience too? I think that that is the core tenet of what developed the idea of me feeling like that I could be a voice to help others. It's not that I feel like my voice is the only voice that's out there, but I know that there's a message that I have been gifted with that I can share that will connect with some people. It's not going to connect with everybody. As I started to go through the process of being a firefighter and then being a paramedic and then being an instructor, I realized that people cued off of what you did. And like, if you are a senior medic, like you've been on two or three years, the new guys coming in, they're watching everything you do and they're going to key off of that. So leadership, is at the very core of everything you have to do if you want to be an example. Because anything less than that is detrimental. There's good leadership and there's bad leadership. And I wanted to be good. And so being a coach, I started to kind of relate a lot of areas of my life, which is why I do kind of a a patch quilt of topics to different people. It's not just centric to fire and EMS, which is ironic because when I went in to get my my company made and my logo made, they made a big deal about that. Uh, There was a company, Anari, that they sat down and for like three months, we went through stuff about how to develop who I was trying to be. And they were like, you know, you need to know your audience. You got to know your, I said, but I feel like a unicorn. I don't really think I have a audience. I think the world can be the audience and just have my voice. But I started looking back at all the different areas that influence one thing to the next. Coaching suddenly was the thing that stood out the most to me because I started thinking about when I coached everything from T-ball all the way up to adult league something. You know, they cue off of you, the coach. How do you go about your business? That's how, that's where the culture is set. And then your expectations for them have to be the same for yourself. And so if you're not leading by example, you're not a true leader. That's the bottom line. So leadership, it's a big thing. And I realize that there's different types of leadership and obviously every aspect of life, there will be leaders. But I definitely have, have centered in on that because I want people to understand that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter if you have a title or not, you have something to bring to the table and everybody, everybody's watching somebody and you never know who's watching you lightheartedly, but serious. I tell them I have two rules in my classroom. Don't be late and don't suck. And sucking develops yourself by not giving me your best, but more specifically, not giving yourself your best. So if you're giving your best and you're messing up, that's okay. Give your best. And I harp, I'll stand out in the hallway with my phone looking at the time. And if they're not in that classroom by nine o'clock, one, they're losing points, two, they're getting the big voice yelling at them down the hallway, high knees. And so I harp on that. And those students know they better be in the classroom ready to go at nine on the last days of class, the last two days, because we have a split class. I purposely come in 15 minutes late and I put up on the board behind the projector. I was late on purpose. So they know that I was late on purpose and I'll come in the classroom and inevitably it's the same thing. So if anybody listens to this before they're in my class, they're going to be waiting on this moment at the end of the semester. So it's a spoiler alert. I'll come in 
and inevitably they'll start hammering me. Oh, Coach Camp's sucking. Oh, he's late. Look at he's late. And I'll let him go for a good minute. And then I'll just reach over and hit the projector button and the thing goes up and it says I'm late on purpose. And then I just drive the point home. This is why you have to lead by example, because if you expect stuff of others that you're not willing to do yourself, you are not leading. They will not follow. You have to lead by example. Do the right thing every time, no matter how difficult it is. Always, always do the right thing because the right thing is always the right thing to do. Powerful stuff. There's so much we can go into now, but I wanted to get the story so everybody knows Coach Camp. And what I want to end with right now is actually just talking a little bit about it. You got a Facebook page and it's just it's just great. Great stuff all the time. And again, look for that. It's very simple. Motivate with Coach Camp. You'll find that there on Facebook. Also, you can find it on YouTube. And what I love about your YouTube channel, I'm looking at Chats on the Farm. <laughs> we get that. Yeah, you got that's your, how we started. You got your uh, Monday Motivation that's up there. Mm-hmm. There's other things like things you've been speaking at. One of my favorite parts is that all of a sudden you'll find a video there about eye irrigating and bandaging, amputation, splinting, <laughs> and sub-Q injections. The list goes on. So there's a lot of stuff there. But to me, this is part of what I want to encourage everybody to check out. And also tell me a little bit about the podcast. You do a lot with leadership on that. So tell me about the podcast. How can I listen to it? The quickest way to find all these links to the podcast, to the YouTube channel, is just go to motivatewithcoachcamp.com and I have all the little icons up there and in the in the header part of it and you can just click on those things and it takes you straight to it so the youtube stuff is funny because i put stuff out there that try to that i want to be positive and i'll have a message to it and i just wanted to say that the eye irrigation and stuff during covid we had a situation where we couldn't have classroom and i had no way to get videos to my students so i said i tell you what guys i will put these on my youtube channel y'all just go there they were like that's just another way to get subscribers i'm like maybe but still it'll be there for you so that was actually kind of developed in a different way anyway So for the podcast, uh, you can get the podcast link off of my website, motivatewithcoachcamp.com. So that's part of what we do. And it really is to highlight things, topics, discussion points. I don't have anything that's off limits. There's nothing that's off limits for my show. If it's something that is important and relevant to life and we can find encouragement from it, I want to bring them on and talk about it. Shelby Rowe Productions, his entire team, they're just phenomenal. I try to constantly get better. Listen, I appreciate you sharing your story, kind of who you are with everyone. I think it, it's really inspiring. You know, there is life after firefighting and, and emergency mm-hmm. medical services. More, There's more to it. But I think that passion that rolls into everything else. I know guys that are now doing real estate, they do it with a passion in business on their own. They've taken it further, but they're still that firefighter, paramedic, deep at heart that never ends. It's all part of the family. So thanks so much, Christopher. I appreciate Thank uh, you for Coach having me Camp. on, sir. <laughs> yes, and I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to speak and, and share the story and uh, appreciate all your positivity, sir. Oh, no problem. Thank you. That's our storyline turning lemons into lemonade. The story of Christopher Camp, Coach Camp. If you would like to contact Emergency FD Storyline with comments or suggest a story or subject for an upcoming podcast, you can email us at storyline at emergencyfd.com. That's storyline at emergencyfd.com. Also, check out our website at emergencyfd.com. Emergencyfd.com. You can find us on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and the like. Look for Emergency FD or Emergency FD Storyline. I'm Tom Mann, and I want to thank you for listening. There are many stories coming on Emergency FD Storyline. Join us.